Chapter 20 of the book of Revelation has been the subject of numerous tomes speculating, for instance, on one of its central elements, the meaning of the 1,000 years. And we do have a natural curiosity about such matters, like the return of Christ before or after the millennium. And it makes an interesting study to see how different groups down the centuries have interpreted it. But whether premillennialist, postmillennialist, or amillennialist, historic and contemporary fixations with the meaning of the millennium should not obscure the spiritual riches and assurances of the chapter in terms of what it tells us about the character of God and our situation as believers here and now and for the future. I want to identify four of these characteristics today. First is the authority, power, and sovereignty of God. Right through the book of Revelation, there is a battle between the forces of evil and God and his people. The conclusion of that battle comes in this chapter, which has the tenor of finality expressed in conflict and judgment, victory and defeat, life and death, the saved and the lost, all configured around the theme of hope, which is pivotal to the book as a whole. It is this battle that God's sovereignty is clearly expressed in, and here specifically in his disposal of Satan. How does this happen? It occurs in two stages, Satan's binding and his destruction. Of course, Satan is already bound in a sense, for with Christ's first coming, the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus went around casting out evil spirits to demonstrate precisely this. And we know that Satan was defeated on the cross and with the resurrection of Jesus. But his final defeat awaits. First, he is bound and consigned to an abyss like a prison sentence for a thousand years. This period of confinement is not just random, for as we know in Revelation, numbers are usually symbolic. And here the number 1,000, a cube of 10, is a number of completeness. In other words, Satan is bound for a perfect period. As well as that perfect period of confinement, notable also here is Satan's insignificance in the whole drama. And this is indicated by the fact that it is not the Father or Christ who carries out this act of binding, but in an act of delegation, the task is left to an anonymous angel. A final aspect of Satan's confinement is that, in contrast to the present age when he is still active, his activities are completely controlled or limited during the duration of his binding. So the sovereignty of God is evident in Satan's perfect period of confinement, his insignificance, and the limitation on his activities, all indicative that the end is ultimately under God's control. This binding up of Satan should be taken symbolically. But what must we, we must ask is the point of binding at all. What purpose does it serve? Why does God not get, just get rid of Satan right away? Well, as verse 3 tells us, the purpose of binding is to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years are ended. But there's an additional purpose. 
Again, answering the question, what is the point of binding? We know that following his release after confinement, Satan shows no signs of change, for he goes back to his old ways and gathers the forces of evil for a final showdown. Though still under God's control, Satan will lead the wicked in one final act of rebellion and try to destroy God's people. He resumes his evil ways, but this time on a larger scale. All this is evidence that restraining evil, even for a complete and perfect period, is not sufficient. It only proves that it is relentless and unchanging. And so, this occasions God's second final act against Satan, his destruction. The nations, during his binding, are not deceived by Satan, but on his release, they give in, showing that whenever Satan is active, people succumb. He gathers the nations for a final battle, epitomized in Gog and Magog, who symbolize the forces of evil, the enemies of God's people. But by this point, God has had enough. Quickly and decisively, the forces of evil are assembled and judged. But there is no final battle. God simply decides to act, and he succeeds. Evil is decimated by fire from heaven without a battle, despite the vast scale and apparently limitless force assembled. And so God exercises his authority, his power, and his sovereignty against Satan, emanating in his destruction and all who follow him. This is the Satan who has, as the prince of the world, accused us, deceived us, denied us peace, love, and security, and brought in their place distrust, rebellion, and fear of death, and who has sought and gained for himself the worship which belongs to God alone. But God now casts Satan into the lake of fire, where he will suffer forever with the beast and the false prophet. He is now gone for all time. Satan will no longer lurk, accuse, deceive, or condemn. The forces of evil unleashed by Satan into society to corrupt its social, political, and economic functions are eliminated. God frees the world from these forces that spoil human existence. Evil is done with forever. Its defeat is real and certain. God, not evil, rules the world and its destiny. The second aspect of God's character shown here is that of justice. Another as a function of Satan's binding is that during it, the Christian martyrs are recognized. Who are they? We are told in verse 4 that they are the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. What happens then? In an act of divine justice, they are raised to life again and they come to share in the blessings of Christ's kingdom for a thousand years. Again, the perfect, complete time coinciding with the term of Satan's confinement. In a supreme act of restoration and justice, this becomes the first resurrection, the raising of the martyrs to a life of glory with Christ. Raised, they will not die again, nor will they be judged, but will reign with Christ. Third attribute of God's character revealed here is that of judgment. Recently in Hamilton, a group of 30 hooded 
anarchists vandalize shops and businesses in, pro in protest against gentrification, causing over $100,000 worth in damage. The community felt violated, but so far the culprits have eluded capture. There is anger that such thugs can seemingly get away with such acts that are so destructive to others. At the same time, much good that occurs in Hamilton goes unnoticed. There is, for instance, the true city movement, where churches act together for the good of the city. There's a thriving arts sector, exemplifying new creativity in a post-industrial area. And there are proactive efforts to welcome refugees. And no doubt, such efforts could be cited for other cities and areas. What are we to think? On the one hand, callous acts are committed all the time. And on the other, acts of charity and sacrifice go unrecognized. All we can say is, thank God for judgment of human actions, good and bad. And so it is. For here we see all the dead being raised to appear before the throne of God for judgment. No one can avoid this judgment, irrespective of status. As scripture tells us elsewhere, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Drawing on an older Jewish tradition that all our human actions are recorded in a heavenly book, chapter 20 introduces the books of deeds in which all our acts are recorded and for which we are to be held accountable. The fact that actions are recorded means that what we do matters to God, and we will be accountable. And the message here given is that we should continue to do right, perform charitable acts, and serve those in need, even if this brings no recognition. And at the same time, the existence of the books of deeds is an indication that in the end, injustice will be brought to account. Finally, the attribute of God's character demonstrated supremely here is that of grace. While deeds or actions matter, John of Patmos makes it clear that we are not saved by what we do, but rather it is on the basis of God's grace that judgment will be conducted. That is the purpose of the Book of Life. Again, drawing on Hebrew tradition, the Book of Life records the names of those who have eternal life. In it are the names of citizens of the city of God, the New Jerusalem. Their names are already there, not by their own efforts or by their actions, but by divine grace. We are told that these names are there from the beginning of the world, but not because they are those who have done good deeds. Rather, they are there because God decided to include them as an act of grace. This might make it seem like God has chosen some people for everlasting life and not others. Some are in and others are not. And it makes God look like he is unfair. All this seems to be contrary to the message of hope that Revelation wishes to convey. But, as we see in chapter 21 to follow, the numbers entering the gates of the New Jerusalem seem more like a torrent rather than a trickle. As Craig Coaster, in his commentary on this chapter, says, this seems to point to a paradox in the whole judgment exercise. 
For on the one hand, the books of deeds imply that our actions matter and that we will be held accountable for them. Yet on the other hand, the book of life suggests that people are not saved by what they do, but are saved by the grace of God. Ultimately, our actions do matter because they impact those around us. Yet in the end, the message of this chapter is that salvation and the future is a gift from God, graciously given to those whom God chooses. Chapter 20 of Revelation sets before us a magnificent but daunting series of word pictures delineating key characteristics of God's nature. God's majesty as judge and God's grace as loving father. By giving us this vision of the future, we are called to a commitment, but not in the way proposed by those who have an obsessive interest in, take, in trying to read the predictions of Revelation into the present or project them into the future, epitomized in the entire political, political religious culture that is built around them. As history shows, speculations about the millennium are ultimately uncertain. We are to allow judgment and its timing to be in God's hands. What is certain is the defeat of evil, the judgment of God, justice and grace, all of which are meant to evoke in us trust, faith and hope. Instead, we are called to a renewed commitment in the present to do as Micah 6.8 instructs, to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We are to embrace a living faith in Jesus Christ, reflected in a discipleship that impacts all areas of our lives, the everyday decisions of life, how we conduct our relationships, our commitments, and how we use our time. And to do so, even if others don't notice, all done in the knowledge that we are accountable to God alone, and also in the knowledge that current forms of injustice and oppression will one day end. With its message of hope, Revelation 20 acts as an incentive to us to persevere in faith, not to fear evil, and gives an assurance that our longings for justice will be fulfilled through God's justice and judgment. Let us thank God that our future is greater than we can imagine. Let us place our trust in God as to our future, confident that God is in control of all eternity, knowing that the outcome is certain, and let us join with the angels around the throne in saying praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>